Our scripture reading today is from Titus 2. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Sword of the Lord. Well, thank you, Sarah, for reading that, and thank you, worship team, for leading. My name is Thomas Nelson. I'm one of the ministers or pastors on staff here at Christ Covenant. It is great to see all of you. So go ahead and turn to that chapter if you haven't yet, Titus chapter 2. If you're unfamiliar as to where that is, go all the way to the back all the way to the back of the book, and then back it up a couple of books, and you'll get to Titus. It's a little tiny book, three short chapters. We've divided it up into four weeks here at Christ's Covenant, and so this is week three of those four, and we, uh, we're going to look at the idea of sound doctrine and what is sound doctrine, and, uh, and then we're going to try to apply it, and then we're going to see it hopefully lived out as we have three fellows who are going to come and be baptized at the end of this service, which is an incredible application of sound doctrine. And so we're looking forward to the way that this service is going to culminate let me just reread a couple of the verses that Sarah read to us. One is uh, verse 1, and then I'm going to go 11 through 14. So, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. For the grace of God, verse 11, has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Lord, I just ask that you would speak to us this morning. Lord, move in our hearts. Stir us up to a great affection Lord, may we follow you. May we live out the faith that we say we believe. It's in Jesus' name, amen. So the, the idea, I really think of chapter two, it's a call to live out our faith. And, uh, and you're, you may be saying, well, I'm at church on a Sunday during the summer. That's got to be extra credit. 
Uh, and so, and some of you are like, I was on vacation just the other day. Look at my gram. You'll see. And you know what? We appreciate it. You are partially living out your faith. I am partially living out my faith. And it is, we are called to continually strive to live out our faith. And that's really where, where Timothy is, or where Paul is instructing Titus here. He's calling us to live out our faith, and he's calling this early church to live out its faith. So let me just give you a background in case you, you missed when Blake taught a couple of weeks ago. So Paul is writing to, to Titus here, and Titus is starting a bunch of house churches in the island of Crete. And so I don't know if you've been to, uh, to that part of the world, but Crete's one of those places that has the really pretty water, and it's beautiful around. And it was, a, uh, it was a little island that a lot of folks would come to for travel. They would stop in there. They would resupply. They would drop off supplies. They would swap supplies, and then they would continue traveling around. Crete was a really, it was really pagan by and large. And, uh, and here's why it was so pagan. Crete is believed to be the birthplace of Zeus. I have a little picture of Zeus I'll show you. And, uh, and so you may see Zeus. This is a statue reenactment. He's holding thunder. If you didn't know that was possible, well, if you were the Greek god Zeus, you could hold thunder, which was actually given to him as a gift from another god. And so the people of Crete believed, hey, if Zeus came from us, what better person to live up to than Zeus? So let me just give you a little background on Zeus because it's going to make a whole lot more sense as to why Paul instructed Titus to do all the things he instructed him to do. So Zeus was known for running around and chasing a lot of women. He, uh, he chased a lot of other uh, you know, mythological gods and or goddesses. And so Zeus was known as a womanizer. And so the men of Crete thought, why not live up to that? Let's, let's chase women. And so that's what they did. Zeus was also notoriously untrustworthy. He was a liar, so much so that Cretans thought if it was good enough for Zeus, it's good enough for us. So let's be swindlers and crooks because if that's what Zeus was, why shouldn't we be that? In fact, one of the Greek words for liar sounds a whole lot like Cretan, which is very interesting. The, the, all, the whole Greek empire named their word lying after the Cretans. They were just trying to be like Zeus. So they were chasing women. They were notorious for lying and swindling. They were also mercenaries for hire. They went to the highest bidder. Their value system was me. What's going to be best for me? How much can I get for me? And so you can kind of start to see the landscape of the people of Crete. And yet it was a super influential little island. And so Paul thought, man, this would be a great island for Christians to be on. This would be a great place for the gospel to go because if the gospel goes to Crete, it's going to go out from Crete also. And so you, you, it's a great plan. Let's take the gospel to Crete. People are going to become followers of Christ. Christ is going to go out to the rest of the world. The problem is you got to go against a whole bunch of years of a whole group of people trying trying to be like this false god, Zeus. And so that's what Paul was up against when he sent Titus there, and that's what Titus was dealing with, and that's what this whole book is about. Now, the things I described about the people who followed Zeus aren't too much different than how I would describe most of the culture around us today. If you're a guy, chase women, do what's best for you, don't worry so much about the other people, and you get yours. 
If you're a girl, you're just trying to survive. So why not hook up with the best man who's going to get you the furthest down the road? And when he stops working for you, go find another one. And so you got this culture that really looks a lot like our culture today. And that's why I think that's, it's so neat that this book is so transferable to us now. And so let's begin to take a look. I'm going to show you how we're going to study this, this chapter. And so I'll put up a, a screenshot of the way that I highlighted this on my iPad. And you may think, what in the world is happening here? But what I think you'll start to see is this book goes a couple of different places. So if you see a light yellow, that's going to be for the person instructing. There's going to be, that's going to be in verses one. That's going to be also in verses seven and eight. In the middle or right at the top part there, I think we've zoomed in on it. We've got a blue and a pink. That's going to be the instructions to the men. And then it's going to go to instructions to women. Then it's going to be another set of instructions to men. And then you, you look, and there's another little section. I think we've blown it up. There's a section for the bond servants. And then there is the why. And the why is the bright yellow. And so I encourage you, by the way, if you can highlight anything you can do when you're studying your Bible to make it come to life and jump off the page. I think you ought to have one that you can just write in, circle. Uh, in the back of my Bible, I have all these little, uh, these little symbols that I've written down. And, uh, and so instead of writing a whole bunch of notes next to stuff, I have this little symbol and I'll put it next to a word. And if I forget what that is, I'll just go to the back and I'll look at my little key that I made. And you know what? All of a sudden, it's like, yeah, this is, you feel like a dog chewing on a bone just trying to get all the marrow out. And I think that's how we're supposed to consume the word. We just gnaw on it and we gnaw on it and we gnaw on it. And you know what? If you can highlight it and write in it and circle it, man, make it yours and let the Lord speak to you through it. So that's how we're going to look at this. We're going to look at it in sections instead of, instead of a verse by verse look today. So let's look at the first section here. Uh, we'll just go with, we'll go with verse one just for a second and get an idea of what this is about. Verse one is, but as for you, this is Paul talking to Titus, you teach what accords with sound doctrine. And that's, that's the call for all of us who teach. We're supposed to teach sound doctrine. And now, when you first hear this, you might think, oh, you're supposed to teach a bunch of theology. And at Christ's covenant, we do teach theology. We have courses on systematic theology and church history and all kinds of incredible things to help increase your knowledge of what it means to follow God and who God is. But this is actually a little bit different. This is more the practical application. And so the word sound, sound is basically when you translate it from the, the Greek into modern day English, we're supposed to teach sound, which is wise for the moment. And doctrine is instruction. So this is wise for the moment instructions. And certainly infused in that, not able to be separated from that, is godly. So Titus has been instructed by Paul to teach godly, wise for the moment instructions on how to conduct your faith in the world around you. And that's the heart of this whole chapter, how to conduct your faith in the world around you. And so let's take a look at the next section here. And that's the part where he's going to talk to men. And so 
He's going to talk to men in verse 2 and then again in verse 6. And so let's take a look at verse 2 and 6. I'm going to read them together. Verse 2, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Likewise, verse 6, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. I don't know about you, but I found early on in life that it's very easy as a man to let your, to let your drive, to let your strength, to let the, the carnal things that just, that just make you want to just kind of just go, I don't know, just grunt a little bit. I found that like that is a much easier way to be driven when I was in high school, I, uh, I wanted to play football, and that's a whole other story. We didn't have a great coach, didn't have a great team, and, uh, and I never really, I never really lo- like learned to play the game well, but there was another coach in our school, and he said, hey, why don't you come out for the wrestling team? And I thought, what? Well, that sounds scary. And, uh, and so I went out for the wrestling team, and I won one match my freshman year. Uh, one match against a mentally handicapped kid from another school, which is another story for another day. It was like a terrible moment. I didn't know if I should win or lose, and I didn't know what to do. And it was just a, it was a rough time that year, that first year of wrestling. It's okay if you laugh at that. If you're like, Thomas, we feel bad for you. We don't know what's happening. Yeah, it was a rough time. My dad said, Thomas, do you like wrestling? And I said, I really do like it. And he said, well, then you're going to apply yourself. And so I started these 5 a.m. workouts, and I started just, I, my, dad, my dad paid for a coach here in downtown Atlanta, and I would go meet with that coach. And one day, that coach had me working out, had me doing this exercise called duck unders, and it was in the summer, and I was doing these duck unders, and he said, we're going to do 100. He said, this is going to be your move. You're going to go from a duck under to a fireman's carry, and you're going you're gonna to put the guy on his back really quick. And he said, he started counting, and he was, started counting one, two, three, and I went through all these duck unders, and it was like you, you swipe from one side of his body to the other and you get behind him and you start to throw him. And I noticed at one point there was a red line on his shirt and it was because I had done so many that my ear was bleeding as it would go past his shirt. He never said stop. Next thing you know, I was sitting in front of a fan and I had passed out and I see him in, in front of me and his, his name is Arturo. And he said, Thomas, are you okay? And I said, yeah, what happened? Did I pass out? And he said, yes. And uh, I said, oh, he said, here's some water. And I drank a little water. And he said, are you feeling better? And I said, yeah, I I feel better. He said, okay, 43 left. And he made me finish. And all of a sudden, I found that wrestling was a great way to feel very manly. In fact, I didn't have to talk to another guy. I could just go fight him with rules. And, And you would just go fight. And may the toughest and the grittiest and the strongest and the smartest win. And ended up winning, and I won a bunch, and I won like a whole lot. And uh, I had a chance to go wrestle in college. And by God's grace, the Lord didn't let me do that. Because I had started finding an identity in manhood. It was all about fighting. And it was easy to be a fighter. It's much harder to be what 
Paul instructs Titus for men to be here. Look again. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. And likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. You know, we started taking mission trips a few years ago to, to Zimbabwe. We met this older couple, Chris and Norma Ferguson, and uh, they are Zimbabwean. They've lived in Zimbabwe pretty much their whole lives. I think I've got a picture of Chris and Norma and Heather and I. And uh, when I met Chris, I would take these college students, and uh, I think there's even a couple in the room who went with us to Zimbabwe on one of those trips. And uh, for six or seven years, we took college students to Zimbabwe and and when we were there, I would take these students, and some of them, uh, the old wrestling Thomas would come out. I was thinking, this kid, I want to wrestle him, and, and, uh, and I want to hurt him. And, uh, and so, like I, like, I would get them to, to Zimbabwe, and by the time you've traveled for 36 hours and you're super tired, and this kid, who all of a sudden is more wound up now than when you started on the trip, and the weeks of training going into it, all of a sudden, you just, you really do want to leave them in a far, far away place. And, uh, and I would get them there and Chris would f- just miraculously find that kid. And I would look and after two hours of being there, Chris would have his arm around that kid. He'd be walking them through the African bush and he would be talking to them and he'd be encouraging them. And he would come back in and he would say, Tom, so-and-so over there, what a great young man. And I was like, not the one, no, no. He's not a great young man. <laughs> and Chris, would, Chris would, would find a way to love the most difficult people to love and to harness all this wild energy that they would have and somehow or another kind of redirect it towards the Lord. He's one of the greatest examples that I know of this passage. Over the years of walking with the Lord, he has found there's two paths to being a man. One is the womanizing, macho, serve myself, get it done for me, kind of Cretan way. And the other way is much more difficult the way of Christ, the way of I'm always third because God is first and others are second. That sacrificial love that God showed us, and I learned so much from watching Chris. It's a rare thing to see those kind of men, but I believe this room is full of those kinds of men and those kinds of men in the making. And then if you remember that picture that I showed you of the way that I highlighted these verses, you've got the group of, you've got an address to men, an address to men, and in the middle, Paul writes an address to the women. 
who Titus is supposed to instruct. And it's very interesting. Before we get into that, you see the women are in between the two instructions to the men. And now that doesn't excuse the women from not behaving the way that they're supposed to behave, living out their faith as they're supposed to live out if the men don't act right. But I promise you, fellas, the way the Lord has set it up, if we do our part, it's much easier for the ladies to do their part. And so I think that there is gravity in the way that Paul has written to Titus, an instruction to men, an instruction to women, and then another instruction to men. And so, fellas, I think we need to take that as gravity in this being uh, self-controlled and sober-minded and dignified and sound in faith and love and steadfastness. And then he instructs the women. He says, older women likewise, verse 3, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So this call to live out what I believe if I'm a lady, it really means that my life ought to look different than the other ladies in the neighborhood, the other ladies in the office, the other ladies in class. Just as the men are supposed to be opposite of the way that they're naturally geared in the carnal self, so the women are supposed to also have a flip of the way they behave. Now, the Cretan women were known for responding to the way the Cretan men lived. How did the Cretan men live? Well, they were chasing women, so the Cretan women said, fine, we'll be the prettiest, we'll be the fastest, we'll go after the most men we can go after, we'll find those men, we know how to manipulate men, so we'll manipulate them, we'll get the guy that is best for the moment, and then when he's no good, we'll drop him and we'll go after another one. And Paul said, hey, look, if you're a Christian woman in Crete, why don't you do the opposite? Why don't you find a godly man? Why don't you manipulate him, get him to marry you, you know? Uh, and we, we know, fellas, all, those of us who are married, like, we had a little bit to do with it. Uh, but if it wasn't for them saying, yes, I'm going to let you marry me, that would never happen. And, uh, and that's just, that's just the, the grace of God. And so, fellas, you uh, don't, don't think you're smarter than you are is what I think I'm trying to say. Now, ladies, Paul is telling Titus here, hey, don't run around like everybody else. I think in modern day context, he could be saying, hey, don't dress like everybody else. Don't do what everybody else does. Don't post what everybody else posts. Hey, why don't you through your life show that you have a different and higher purpose? And that's what he's instructing the women here to do. He's saying, hey, older ladies, instead of just walking around and being gossips, you know, maybe you don't have as much responsibility at home anymore. Hey, why don't you take your time and why don't you pour into younger women? And so many of our older women here are doing that. I'm really proud of you. And he says, hey, be reverent in behavior. Don't be slanderers or slaves to much wine. Let me go back to that, be reverent in behavior. The idea there, I looked it up in the Greek, the idea there is to be holy, to be set apart. Where people look at you and they say, it seems like I just see something different in you. 
in the way that you greet me as you walk by, in the way you handle yourself in the office, in the way you post things, in the way you dress, in the way you conduct yourself, in the way you don't talk about those other people when they come up and it's easy to talk about them. I see something about you that's just different. And you know what? It's because you're set apart. And so is your conversation and your demeanor and the way you carry yourself. All of that is set apart. And what is it doing? It's directing others towards somebody other than yourself. Who are you directing them towards? Well, hopefully you're directing them towards the Lord. Because I promise you, when I look around this room, there are a bunch of attractive, strong men in here, and there are a bunch of pretty smart ladies in here. The world is looking at you. I promise you, there's so much influence in this room. Even if you don't think they are, they're looking at you. And they want to know what makes you tick. And Paul's instructing Titus here, let them know it's the Lord who's making you tick. You know, I think that so often when we, we feel this, this, uh, this push to go away from the way that the Lord is calling us to live out our faith, we think it only affects us. I'm going to just do this little sin. I'm just going to, to do this little thing. It's just going to affect me. But what Paul is telling Titus here is that, no, it doesn't just affect you. It affects the witness of Christ in the world. Once we become his, all of us becomes his. And so when a little bit of me drifts away, it's a reflection on Christ and his witness. This whole idea is a call to live what I believe Verses 9 through 10 is uh, instructions that, that Paul is giving Titus to give to the bond servants. Uh, for time's sake, I won't go into that. But I do want to look at what is, the, what is the, the call that Paul gives Titus to people like me or people like you who lead Bible studies or the other pastors in the church. So take a look at verses 7 and 8. It starts off with verse 1, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine, wise, godly instruction for the moment. And then look at verses 7 and 8. He says, to show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Look, when I read this, I asked Heather the other night, we were on vacation this past week, we were out west in a couple of the national parks, and uh, I was sitting in bed one night, and I handed her my iPad, and I said, read this verse. And she read verses 7 and 8, and she said, yeah. And I said, I don't think I do this very well. And uh, she didn't say that I did. Uh, and so... <laughs> I think, now Heather loves me and she fully supports me in the ministry, but this is a heavy weight for folks like me who are teachers. And I don't ever want to shy away from that weight. And I don't think any of the pastors in this church want to shy away from that weight. And the weight is that my life should be an open book. So that whether it's Sunday morning or Tuesday evenings in our young adult ministry, you should be able to come up to me as one who is supposed to give sound doctrine, and you should be able to ask me anything about my life. 
And that is a scary and heavy weight. It kind of makes me a little nauseous. But you know what? We don't shy away from that. And we take the call serious. Because I want to be one of those folks that you can say, you know what? Let's ask. What do we do in this scenario? What do you do in this scenario? And in that moment, my cards are called on the table. And if I, by God's grace, have done well in something, I will tell you it is by God's grace, here's what I have done. And if I have failed in something, it is because I owe it to the Lord to be candid with you. I will say, I have not done this great, but here's how I think it should be done. And you know what? My life is supposed to be an open book for you. And Paul says that in 1 Timothy 3.10. He says, you have known my life and my doctrine, my instruction. I have lived it out in front of you. For three years, Jesus had his disciples following him nonstop. They could see every aspect of his life. That is how we are supposed to live. And you know what? All of us actually should aspire to rise to that and to say, you know what? Let me live out my faith in such a public way that everyone in my household knows exactly what it is or what it means for me to follow Jesus Christ. And so it's a heavy, heavy call. Now, when I look at this chapter if I'm not careful, it can look like a whole chapter on just a whole bunch of things to do. Men, you be sober-minded, you be dignified, you be self-controlled. Women, older women, you be reverent, you draw people to holiness, don't slander, don't drink too much, teach what is good, train the younger women. Young men, you be self-controlled, and we could just wrap it up and say, there you go, so go out and do better. And you know what? That's how a lot of sermons sound. In fact, I've taught a lot of sermons like that. And you will fail if the message is go out and do better. Because none of us can just go out and do better. I think instead, it's much more a call to believe and trust that the way that God has made is really the best alternative. I think one of the things that, that we do in the modern church is that we say, I've been saved. But one of the witnesses to show that we've been saved is, has my life changed? Because if we were fine the way we were, we never needed Jesus to go to the cross. God never needed his elaborate plan to redeem us, and we should just carry on. But we weren't fine. Let's take a look at Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us and purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. Look, the Lord came to redeem us. And when he came to redeem us, he also came to change us. Because if we were fine like we were, we wouldn't need a savior. But we weren't fine like we were. 
the old idea that I have of what a man was, that wasn't okay. You don't even have to talk to anybody. You just go fight them. May the best man win. The way of love, the way of Christ, is much more difficult. The Lord saves us, and then he begins to change us. And it's our responsibility to adjust our lives, not because we're going to earn God's love, but because of God's love. It's our way of saying thank you. It's our way of saying, God, you've saved me, so therefore help me to, all, help me to, to change my life for you. Not because I want to earn your love or because that's somehow or another how I'm going to get into heaven, but because you've loved me, because you've died on the cross, because you've saved me, then let me just try to rightly adjust my life by your grace for you. Look at these words. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And once that salvation comes, there's this training that begins to happen in us that says, let me move, let me renounce let me move from where I used to be closer and closer to God. So let me renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and help me to move and to live in a self-controlled, upright, and godly life in the present age. Why? So that I can say, man, look how good I am. No, so that the rest of the world says, whoa, you used to be like this and now you're like this. What has happened? And you say, well, there was this moment when I met Jesus Christ. And I used to be this way, and now I'm this way. One of the greatest examples of that is John chapter 9, when the blind man gets, uh, gets healed. The blind man is one of the greatest stories in the whole, in the whole Bible, I think, especially, uh, at least in, in John, it's probably my favorite chapter. The blind guy, he gets healed, and they say, didn't you used to be blind? And he's like, yeah, I used to be blind. And they're like, what happened? And he's like, I got healed. And they're like, who healed you? And they're like, Jesus. And uh, they're like, but didn't you used to be blind? And he's like, yeah, I was blind, but I'm not anymore. Now I can see. And they just have such a hard time understanding that. But you know what? That's exactly what happens to us. We used to not be saved, and now we are saved. And so we should be different. And when they're like, what happened? You're like, well, I used to not be this way, and now I'm saved. And so now I'm living differently. And you know what? People can wrestle with that. They can wonder about that. But what they're going to do is they're going to watch you. And they're going to watch you because the grace of God has appeared in your life. You know, if you think about it, he's saving us from this, this lawlessness he talks about in verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. If you think about Phil Robertson, you know, Longbeard, Duck Dynasty, have you ever heard Phil Robertson's story? It's a great story. Phil Robertson, I think the way that it goes, he was in a bar one night. And, uh, and he got into a fight with a man, and I think somebody had to, I believe the story goes something like the man had to, somebody had to pull Phil off the guy before Phil killed him. And Phil Robertson knew at that point something was deeply broken inside of him, that he would go to a place where it was okay if he killed another man in a fight. And it wasn't long after that that Phil met Jesus Christ and was saved. He was born again. He moved away from ungodliness, and Jesus saved him from lawlessness that his life might be changed. And he began to live the life of love and self-control as he moved away from the lawlessness, the rebelliousness. He moved closer and closer and closer to the Lord. And look at the platform that the Lord has given that guy. 
sometimes you got to go, you got to take it back just a little bit and maybe use a little bit more simple analogy. I think what, what Paul is describing God has done for us through Jesus is this. He's like, on our own, I think our lives are like a closet. Think about your closet right now. If you let your closet do what it wants, it will start to take over the floor in front of it. And then it will begin to move towards the bed and or nearest piece of furniture. And from there, it will begin to mysteriously move across the hall to the next room. Your closet will sooner or later, if left to itself, take over its whole house, take over the whole house. Closets need work to be put into order. That's a lot like us. On our own, we just kind of explode and go everywhere and fall apart. We're a masterpiece of entropy. But what the Lord does through his grace is he begins to put us back into order, bring us back to what it means to be a real man and a real woman so that the world might look and say, that's what it's supposed to be. And it's only done through the love and the grace of Jesus. C.S. Lewis reminds us, though, of people who say they know the Lord but don't live out their faith. He says, if the divine call does not make us better, it will make us very much worse. Of all bad men, religious bad men are the worst. Of all created beings, the wickedest is the one who originally stood in the immediate presence of God. May I just remind you today, if you're a person who says, yes, I'm a Christian, but your life is not moving further away from lawlessness and rebellion and closer and closer to the Lord, that there certainly can come a moment, much like Nebuchadnezzar had in Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar had seen God deliver Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego from the fire. He had seen Daniel interpret dreams. He had said, oh, your God is the God. And the more he encountered God, the less he looked like God. And so God said, Nebuchadnezzar, I'm going to humble you. And God basically drove Nebuchadnezzar, the king, the greatest king probably the world had ever seen at that point, into delirium to the point that he ate grass and lived outside for many, many, many days. And then one day in his humiliation, he came to his senses and he said, you are the true God. May we not have a claim to Jesus and look like a Cretan or Nebuchadnezzar, but may we be like the King James says in verse 14. Look at verse 14 one more time. In the ESV it says, we have, I'm going to read part of verse 13, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And in the King James right there it says, from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a peculiar people. Sometimes it's good to go back to the old English. Do you realize that in Christ, 
You're supposed to be different than everybody else, and it's okay. It's supposed to feel peculiar. It's okay if you walk into the office and you feel like you're different than everybody else. Maybe that's your missionary zone. It's okay if when you're with some of your friends, you think, man, I feel like the way God's calling me to live my life is just different. I feel peculiar. You are peculiar. The rest of the world is walking around in darkness, and you, if you have met Jesus Christ, are walking around in the light. You are peculiar. You were a candle that was not lit, and now you are lit, and you are supposed to be put on a lampstand. There's not a whole lot of candles around. It's supposed to feel like you stick out like a sore thumb sometimes. That's a sign you know the Lord. That's a sign you're following Him. There's a, I'm going to wrap up with a very uh, modern-day philosopher quote from uh, Chris Stapleton. <clears throat> Chris Stapleton's got this song called Starting Over, and I think part of the lyrics in that song actually really kind of paint a good picture of what it means to live what we believe, that our lives are full of sound doctrine. He says, this song's about, about getting out of this town and starting over, and it says, this might not be an easy time. There's rivers to cross and hills to climb. Some days we might fall apart, and some nights might feel cold and dark. But nobody wins afraid of losing, and the hard roads are the ones we're choosing. Someday we'll look back and smile and know it was worth every mile. Let's take our chances and roll the dice, starting over. Life's going to be hard no matter who you follow. But why not follow the one who led the way for us? Why not follow the one who laid his life down for us? Why not follow the one who's saying, I'm calling you home one day and you're going to be mine? Let's not be a Cretan. Let's not have a Nebuchadnezzar moment. Let's embrace being peculiar. Father, I ask that you'd move in our hearts. You'd help us to embrace this idea that it's okay to have a, a call on our lives as men and as women and as teachers. Lord, it's okay to, to feel like we're being put back together by you. It's okay to be peculiar. May we be peculiar for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray, Father. Amen.